Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Two years ago, a man living in the south of France decided to get his leaking roof repaired. He hadn't been up in the loft before. So he went up to discover the source of the dripping water, and there he discovered a painting which experts believe is a lost masterpiece by the Italian uh, painter Caravaggio. The gory painting of Judith and Holofernes has been lost for some 150 years. It is valued at over 90 million pounds. 90 million pounds. Now that is a life-changing amount of money, isn't it? When we told our children this story, they, one of them said, have you checked our loft? (laughs) I don't know if Caravaggio ever came to Withington. Now, if you were in possession of something truly life-changing, what would you do about it? I know the answer. You would take vigorous steps to seize the benefits. You would take vigorous steps to seize the benefits. Now, over the years, I've developed a hunch about many Christians. I think a lot of Christians are like the owners of that house. They are in possession of something that is truly life-changing. It's a message called the gospel, the good news. But they are not taking steps to seize the benefits of the new life that is theirs in Jesus Christ. Now, do you agree with my hunch? Hmm. Is there any substance to it? Let me throw out a few symptoms I've been a Christian for a while now, and I still believe it, but it just doesn't seem real. My spiritual life is basically a struggle. I don't feel I'm really growing or changing. There's this one sin I just can't get over. Either I can't stop doing it, or I can't forgive myself for it, something from the past. I've grown weary of trying to live for Jesus. Or, I'm just unhappy, and I don't enjoy being a Christian. What do you think? Do you ever hear things like that? Do you ever say them? Do you ever feel them? Well, I do. And let's be real, this is a common problem, and it always has been. Fifty years ago, a pastor in London, who was also a doctor, a medical doctor, preached a series of sermons called Spiritual Depression. It was published in a book that became a classic overnight. He wrote these words, There are large numbers of people in this unhappy situation. The Christian life seems to them to be a constant problem. And they're always asking the same question. Why can't I get there? Why can't I be like that? And they are cast down. Their souls are cast down within them and disquieted. But you know what? It doesn't have to be like that. At least not according to the New Testament. Contrast that picture of struggling, disconnected Christianity with these statements. I'm going to read these straight out from Romans chapter 8. Not the whole chapter, just some statements from it. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. 
What about this? Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. Two different kinds of mind. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. And finally, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? You get a sense there of what he's talking about, what he thinks the normal Christian life consists of? So let me ask you, does your experience of the Christian life resemble those statements ever? Do you experience that kind of spiritual life? Do you want to? Would you like to? Because according to the New Testament, being a Christian is about being given new birth, being given a new life, being put in possession of something life-changing and taking some vigorous steps to seize the benefits for yourself and apply them to your own mind and heart. Do you want this? It is so important for us as a church to get hold of this new life. It is absolutely vital for us, for our happiness, for our joy, for our vitality. Here's a couple of reasons why it's so important. One, most Christians know that they ought to share their faith with people who don't know about Jesus. We know that Jesus sends us out on mission into our home and our family and our workplace and our neighborhood. So if we're being renewed, if we're experiencing this new life, then we're sharing something that's real. And something that's vibrant, something that's precious and tangible to us. But if we're not going through renewal, what then? We may be in danger of trying to sell a product that we don't really believe in. Or of being so uninspired and fearful that we never even try and speak about the Lord. Second reason why it's important to be renewed. We place a great emphasis in this church on small groups. We're a church, Grace Church is a church of small groups, not just with them. We're made up of a number of small groups called life groups. So we organize these life groups. We spend a lot of time thinking about them. We train the leaders. People take the trouble to open their homes and welcome people in and prepare food and eat together. But what actually happens when the group meets? What's the nature and the quality of its interactions? If we're not being spiritually renewed, then the group basically turns into a Christian social club. We talk about the same stuff as the rest of the world. The only difference is we don't swear most of the time. But if we are being renewed, then people meet and they talk about spiritual realities that they are experiencing. And the effect of that is like gathering glowing coals together in a fireplace. Watch out. You see how important this matter is of being the quality of our spiritual experience. It is critical to everything else. You know, it's actually possible to hold orthodox, biblical views about Jesus and about truth and about the Bible and to be spiritually dead. Listen to what 
Jesus himself says to a church in Sardis, the book of Revelation, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. So it's not too late to turn around and repent again, even if you have become spiritually dead. But we need to do it. We need to seize the benefits that are already ours through this gospel. So you see now, there is nothing more important for us to grapple with as a church at the moment than this issue. How can we live an authentic Christian life, renewed spiritual life? Now, I think if there was one text that summed up more than any other uh, the, the nature of the Christian life, it would be Romans chapter 6, verse 4. And this is Paul's great summary. He says this, We were therefore buried with him, Jesus, through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. Oops, that shouldn't have come up yet. Where's the slide? There it is, newness of life. Now, the version we have says something like live a new life, which is an okay translation, but a more literal way of translating this from the original language is walking in newness of life because in the Bible world, the idea of how you walk is an expression of how you live, about everything about you, that you're walking in a certain path. It's a way of life. And he says here, We've been introduced into the Christian community, baptized, which is the entry door, entry, entrance ceremony to becoming a Christian and being incorporated in a community. We've been baptized, an image of being drowned and dead and brought up again, an image of being raised to new life like Jesus because we're joined to him. And so because of that, because our old life has been buried and, and we've been raised up new, now we walk in newness of life. A, new, a whole new way of life is what we've been called to embrace. Do you want that? Do you feel hungry for it? Will you join me in pursuing it? We want to stay in this series for a couple of months, God willing. Will you pray for it? Seek it. And pray for me too. I have to preach. It's not easy. And I do believe that if we find and experience the power of this gospel, this good news, in a fresh, sustained, deep way, then anything could happen. Anything could happen. I heard a story this week from a couple called Tim and Kathy Keller. They went to New York City, to Manhattan in 1989 to start a new church plant. And they were scared because Manhattan was the most secular part of the United States, less than 1% of the population of the city center went to a gospel preaching church. And for 40 years, church plants had started and struggled and died. And they were hoping that maybe, if they could somehow hang in there, God might bless them and they might get to a church of about 100 people. Just hoping for that. In that hard environment. They hoped to make a go of it, maybe get 100 people. And within three years, hundreds of secular New Yorkers had heard the good news and been changed and transformed. And new life came. There was an awakening and a renewal. And now, 27 years later, there are 5% of Manhattanites attend a gospel preaching church in a generation. From less than 1% to 5% in the most secular place in America. Now that's interesting, isn't it? 
How did it happen? Because of renewal and because so much dependent prayer was poured out on that work. So let me ask you, especially if you're a member, a friend here, regular at Grace Church, will you attend to this? Will you press into it and seek it? Will you pray about it? Pray for each other, like family. Pray for our church. Would God do something like that here in Manchester in our generation? It's possible. Now, where do we go to to look for teaching on this subject of newness of life? There's no better place than the letter to the Romans. It's Paul's most sustained and profound reflection on the gospel and on all its implications. And in chapters 3 to 8, he particularly opens up the good news and shows its implications for our lives. So that's where our series will be situated. We won't be doing what we normally do, which is walk through an entire letter. Uh, It would take us probably about... 15 years, but we will spend a couple of months on this theme in the letter to the Romans. Now, when you read Romans, you're struck by something straight away, which is this. Paul's painting is against a very, very dark backdrop. He starts out saying, I'm going to talk about the gospel, and then he just turns the lights off. And he spends two whole chapters exposing the human condition. He spends a lot of time showing the guilt and the sin of all humanity. And it is absolutely devastating critique. Chapter 1, verse 18, if you want to turn back to that, he says this, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. And he says here, basically, all people have heard about God. They have an innate sense an innate awareness a kind of spark that's that's smoldering there somewhere inside they know about God there's two indelible witnesses there's the creation itself the stars the world that God has made it speaks to us about a creator there's also our own hearts which speak to us about some kind of moral standards we have these witnesses you can't erase them but all people fail to live up to the standard of goodness that they claim if you were to record on a tape, or an MP3, depending on how old you are, if you were to record for just one week what you said, to record your own words for one week, and then sit down and listen to them, you know, you would find you don't keep your own standards. You would be judged by your own standards, no matter what your faith position. So all people are guilty before a holy God. We thought already in our sung worship about how holy he is. We reject God and we try and manipulate him in many, many different ways. But the basic human posture towards God is hatred. That's what he says here. We hate God. All of us are naturally born enemies of God. We are natural born enemies of the living God. And when God did come to earth, this is how we treated him. We crucified him and told him to go to hell. Now let's just pull back for a moment. Why on earth would Paul start his great letter to these Romans who he's never even met? Why would he start it in such a dark, negative portrayal about humanity? Here's the answer. Because you have to know you're sick before you can get better. You have to know you're sick before you can get better. A necessary precursor or a precondition to being healed is to know that you are sick. Isn't it? And the human condition is one of sickness. Sickness of sin, a posture of enmity and hatred 
towards God. Let me show you that picture, which came up a moment ago. Lots of gory pictures today. I met this guy a few weeks ago. He's called Matt, six foot five. And when he was in his mid-30s, this Matt was enjoying a great life. Three young children, great job, beautiful wife. He thought he was fit. And one day he just suddenly collapsed and he had a, a massive seizure and a fit and it was revealed that he actually had a cancerous tumour growing in his brain that was by this time the size of a golf ball. He had an MRI scan. It confirmed the, the issues. He had brain cancer. They then uh, rushed him in for a very, very aggressive surgery. You can see on this picture he has a big scar uh, on the top of his head and here he is with some friends praying for him. Now you see this Matt felt fine for a very long time. He thought he was well but he actually had a cancer that was killing him and it had to be relentlessly exposed and destroyed before he could be made well again. And he said that for two years he felt that the doctors were basically trying to kill him. The doctors exposed him to aggressive chemotherapy and poisoned his body, which is what it does. He was wiped out. He was almost destroyed to kill any remaining cancerous cells. Not pleasant, but necessary. In other words, to get renewed life, you have to start with the ugly and stark diagnosis. And that's what Romans chapter 1 to 3 does. Romans 1 to 3 is chemo and an MRI scan rolled into one. Paul applies his relentless logic to expose the human condition. And he concludes, reaches this conclusion in chapter 3, which Jess read for us earlier. Let me read it again. Chapter 3, verse 9 to 10. What shall we conclude then? Here's the conclusion. Do we have any advantage, we Jews? Not at all, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. Under the power of sin, it's an image of a slave master who rules people with harsh, brutal authority. Under his power, sin, this kind of tyrant, controls everybody, whether they're Jew, Jewish people, God's chosen people, or whether they're non-Jews, pagans, whoever they are, they're all under the power of this tyrant. And he says, there's no one righteous, not even one. We're all sinners. Not one of us is righteous. We don't have a plea before God based on our own merits. But here's the interesting thing. Our sin is expressed in very different ways. Depending on who you are, depending on your background, your upbringing, your temperament. And in order for us to get the right chemotherapy... We need to see ourselves correctly, or we may be trying to approach God on completely the wrong basis. There are two primary ways people sin. One is by being very bad, and the other is by being very good. Two primary ways people sin. One is by being very bad, and the other is by being very good. So firstly, being very bad. Romans 1, 18-32 is a catalogue. But this isn't the kind of catalogue you want to leave on your grandma's chair. It's a very ugly one. All the models in this catalogue are very ugly. It's a portrayal of human life without the restraining influence of God's good rule brought to bear on it. Verses 18 and 19, people, Paul says, People have this innate awareness of God, but they suppress the truth by their wickedness. They squash down any truth that they have knowledge about God. They sort of 
hold it down and suppress it and keep it quiet and shut it up. And verse 21 says, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor they gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So this idea of sin here as a darkening of the understanding about God and of the heart, the motivational center of a person being darkened and in the dark and making wrong choices all the time. A sphere of darkness. And it says in this chapter that God allowed them to go their own way. He let them have their choices. And two outcomes of this, this uh, darkening begin with I. Idolatry and immorality. Idolatry and immorality. Uh, immorality is a degrading of the body. And idolatry is a degrading of the soul. Now idolatry in the ancient world was expressed through worshipping statues or models of, of gods. And they could be a human form, or sometimes in the form of animals or birds, or even reptiles, he says. It was a, some, the Egyptians had a crocodile god. But the dynamic of idolatry is timeless. It goes like this. An idol is a person or a thing that you exalt to the place of God. That is somebody that you love and serve and in return, you want them to bless you. You love and serve them, and in return, you, you, want, you expect blessing. So an ex a common example of an idol in our culture is a career. Perhaps you set your heart on being somebody, and you identified that the route to being somebody was a certain career path, something that you were good at, something you admired and respected. And by succeeding in that career, you thought that you would save yourself from being a nobody. So you are prepared to make a great exchange at this point. You will exchange almost anything in order to succeed in that career. Spare time? Forget it. I'm doing long hours. Friends? Well, I can fit them in. Family? Children get sacrificed for careers, you know. Even health. All of them are laid on the altar of the career. And the name inscribed on that altar is your name. Because the worship of career is ultimately a worship of yourself. Another common example of an idol is a relationship. Perhaps you set your heart on finding somebody. And you identified at some point, maybe even as a young teenager or a young person, that the only way you thought to find happiness and security in this life is through the perfect relationship. So you've been searching for Mr. Right for a very long time. But something always goes wrong. Mr. Right never stays right for long, or the feelings wear off. The relationship is an idol. It is something your heart has grasped onto for security and love instead of the living God, who only can give you that. Now, there are two facts about idols that we all need to know. One, they cannot bear the weight we place on them. Like a floorboard with a crack in it, you lean your weight on it and it splits. It cannot hold your weight up. And the second thing you need to know about idols is they take everything from you and then they kill you. They'll take all you have and then kill you. Think of those poor people who lose their career or lose their wealth and kill themselves. Or a friend of mine who dated a girl in his teens, he was about 18, and he broke up with her. And that night she went home and she took her own life. 18-year-old girl. The idol of the romantic relationship, took everything she had. 
See, ultimately, we find that life, apart from the living God, the good God, just doesn't work. Idolatry. And the second thing that he talks about in that chapter is immorality, the second I. See, when we suppress the truth about God, we suppress other things that are attached to it. They, and then these effects are pervasive of, of, of degrading our lives so that we, things, things about us go wrong. And Paul particularly shows in chapter 1 about the sexual arena. He's showing that our very humanity, our very embodied humanity as people, created beings, is turned upside down and decreated. So we're drawn to sexual situations that are distorted. Your sexuality is messed up. And I don't even know you that well. Paul references different kinds of sexual sin, but his point is it's a degrading of the body. It's a degrading of you. Sexual sin does something to you as a person. It's not neutral. It has a kind of a compelling power. It, a kind of destructive force. It lights a fire in you. When I was a teenager, a social worker who'd seen quite a bit of sexual sin in his time came and spoke at our youth group on the Bible, and he said, a few miles from here, I know a man who can only get sexual pleasure from animals. All the youth group was sitting there like this. <laughs> okay. And then he said, and I'll never forget this, nearly 30 years ago, we are all sexual perverts. Now, the portrait of sin expressed here through being very bad doesn't stop. The ugly catalogue Continues on. Here is what he says, verse 28 of chapter 1. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy. Notice how he's now changing to things in the heart. Full of envy. Murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. Wow! That's a shocking statement. Young people. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do those very things, but also prove of those who practice them. So there's one way of expressing hatred to God, and it's by living any way you damn well please. But what happens next in Romans is really clever, because Paul knows his audience. He knows that a lot of people reading this letter are actually very upright, um, moral, people of standing in the religious community. There's going to be some pious, law-abiding, highly moral Jews reading this letter. And he knows that there are a lot of religious people who will be reading chapter 1 and fully agreeing with him, saying, yes, they are sinners, aren't they? You know that self-righteous tut? If you want to hear a self-righteous tut, take five children into a supermarket. <laughs> oh, you will hear some tutting. Believe me, ask my wife. Children are going on that thing. Paul knows people are going to be thinking in their heart of hearts, 
I'm glad I'm not like that. I'm glad I'm not one of those sinners. So now he turns the table. And in chapter 2, he shows that there's another group of sinners. And they don't express their sin by being very bad. Oh, no, not these. They express their sin by being very good. Very, very good. And he addresses the tutting really directly at the beginning of chapter 2. Let me read it to you. You, therefore, you, it's turning the tables, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. Oh, I was just passing judgment. For at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Now you can imagine these moral people hearing this and thinking, hold on a minute, Paul. You're getting a little bit cheeky here. Hang on, what do you mean? We certainly do do the same things as those people in chapter 1. You wouldn't catch me with my trousers down or worshipping an idol with my trousers down or up. (laughs) And that's the point with the moral person. You won't catch them. Because they're so concerned to show that they're very, very good. They're busy providing their own righteousness on their own terms. And Paul then moves to an analysis of heart motives. Over the page, chapter 2, verse 28. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the written code, such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Now, Paul is a devout Jew himself. He's not anti-Semitic. He knows how his people tick. He knows they have had immense spiritual advantages. They had the Word of God, the Old Testament. They were chosen by God to be a special people. They had Moses, the prophets. They had the sacrificial system. They had a way of approaching God. They had the temple. They were phenomenally blessed. And one of the boundary markers of the Jewish men that they were very proud of in the ancient world was circumcision. It marked them off from the Gentiles. It was a physical sign of a special status. But Paul here homes in on a sad fact about humanity. We tend to focus on the externals, not on the heart. He says here, without a changed heart, it's no use having external signs and behavior modification. It's no use having circumcision unless the heart is changed. And the mark of a changed heart is that the person lives for God, not for human praise and recognition. You see, moral people don't sin in gross, visible, and offensive ways. They look holy. But under the surface, there is a a hidden iceberg of sin. Pride, arrogance, judgmental spirit, racism insecurity, anger, all of these attitudes and responses of the heart that are under the surface for the moral, religious person. So how do you know if you've got that kind of heart? How do you know if you have a spiritual pride? Well, I'll ask you a few questions. Spiritual pride likes talking about other people's sins and failings with laughter or contempt. But humility 
He's quiet about those things or grieves and pities them. What do you like? Spiritual pride is quick to suspect other people, to suspect their motives, tends to find fault with other people and spot their deficiencies. But a humble person knows that they've got a lot to deal with in their own heart and they're not inclined to be busy with other people's business and they think of other people as better than themselves. A humble person takes notice of what's good about other people and makes the best of them and downplays their failings. But spiritually proud people speak of what they see um, wrong in other people in harsh and severe language. They're quick to condemn other people's opinions, other people's conduct, other people's ideas. They think that they know best and they must condemn people as a matter of principle. They don't respect authority figures. Spiritual pride often disposes people to kind of act in a way that draws attention to themselves. They act up to try and show that they're spiritual and everybody should look at them. But a humble person is disposed to try and just be all things to all people and yield to others, not try to be the centre of attention all the time. Spiritual pride makes people intolerant in their personal dealings. They're dogmatic, they're awkward, they're stiff, they won't bend, they're always right. They're not pliable and deferential to other people's opinions. But a humble person loves to comply with other people because they have a heart that is tender and flexible like a little child. Spiritually proud person always wants to divide and separate from others and show where they are wrong and where we are right and and put some distance between. We're better than them. We love the idea of being distinct from others, being in a special group or the inner circle. But a humble person delights in union with others and being seen to be united with them. Spiritual pride takes a great deal of notice of criticism. When other people oppose you or injure you, you're bitter and contemptuous of anyone that opposes you. You make a lot about aggravation and talk about it a lot. But the humble person does not respond. Think about Jesus. He was never so silent as when everybody compassed him round, reproaching him, beating him and spitting on him. And finally... Just as spiritual pride disposes people to assume too much about themselves, it also disposes them to neglect other people. They don't value the opinion of others, they have, or they don't have much regard for their feelings. So how do you know if you're like this? How do you respond to criticism? Do you take it and consider it and weigh it up, or are you angry and bitter and resentful and always find a reason to deny it? How do you respond to your own failure? Are you uh, sorry you've screwed up, but you move on from it, or does it just destroy you? How do you view other people's failings? Are you overcritical and harsh towards them? Do you ever say sorry? Or, when you say sorry, are you really sorry? You see, uh, some of us express our sin by being very good. But underneath in the heart, we're proud and judgmental and we're just as bad. Now, the most penetrating insight I've seen into this kind of proud religious spirit is in a short story by a woman called Flannery O'Connor. She died very young, uh, but wrote some incredible stories in her short life. She was a Catholic writer from the southern parts of the United States. And in a story called Revelation, she talks about a main character called Mrs. Turpin. Mrs. Turpin is this married, very respectable, church-going, 
upright member of the community who knows how to behave to get people to like her and to think well of her. And it, but inside, she's a seething cauldron of judgmental opinions and insecurity. And she, in the story, she goes and sits in the doctor's waiting room. And as she's sitting there, talking as nice as pie to everybody, she's judging them by their appearance. She judges that some of them are white trash, and she looks down on them. She judges people by their prosperity. She judges people by their ethnic background. She has a certain view of black people. She even judges people by their shoes. And at one point, she bursts out in happy praise to Jesus that her life is so good. But there's a young student in the room called Mary Grace. And Mary Grace is reading this big book and listening to Mrs. Turpin talking away. And she sees her proud and disdainful attitude to the white trash and to black people. And the student is getting more and more angry. And finally, she takes the book and she hurls it across the waiting room and hits Mrs. Turpin just above the eye. And then she throws herself onto her and gets her fingers around her throat and starts to throttle her. But in the lucid, and then the, the, the waiting room goes crazy and the doctor is called and he holds the girl down and injects her with a sedative. But before she passes out, Mary Grace looks at Mrs. Turpin in the eye and she has this lucid moment. It's like she's looking straight into her soul and she says, go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. And then she passes out. Now, for some reason, these words really get to Mrs. Turpin. She returns home to the farm feeling stung and, and angry. She lies in bed fuming. She can't sleep. Then she goes to people who know her, and she tells them all about the girl and all about what the girl did. And they all say how outrageous it was and how unfair and that such a thing should happen to such a nice lady. They tell her what she wants to hear. But Mrs. Turpin can't shake off the feeling that the girl had actually looked right into her and knew her for what she was, and that the message about being a warthog was actually a word from God. So she goes out alone to a place in the farm where she can be alone, where the pigs live, and they have this pig pen, and they have a, she has a hose, and she's spraying down these pigs. And as she's hosing them down, she is ranting out loud at God, and this is the heart of the religious very good person when it's exposed. She says, what did you send me a message like that for? To God. In a low, fierce voice, barely above a whisper, but with the force of a shout in its concentrated fury. How am I a hog and me both? How am I saved and from hell too? And she's blindly shaking this thing around and the poor pigs are screaming and trying to get away from the water. Why me, she says, There's no trash around here, black or white, that I haven't given to. And I break my back to the bone every day working, and I do it for the church. And then she says, how am I a hog? How am I like them? She compares herself to various groups who she she thinks she's better than. And she finally shouts out, looking at the sky and looking at the sunset. Who do you think you are? You ever said that to God? Who do you think you are? I've done all this for you, and this is how you treated me. There's the essence of the religious sinner. They're very, very good until things go wrong. Now you see from the viewpoint of an infinitely holy and happy God who is perfectly excellent in every way, there is no difference at all between a person who expresses their 
sin by being very, very bad and the person who expresses their sin by being very, very good. There's hardly a hair's breadth between them in the view of God because the essence of sin is that self is at the centre and we're all naturally born enemies of God. At heart, we hate him and his call on our life. An amazing story that I heard recently was that they analysed the hotel uh, TV and video accounts of the men who the next day were going to fly planes into buildings on 9-11. So these men who were so devoted to their faith that they were going to give up their own lives in a suicide bombing attack, the very night before they went on that mission, every single one of them watched pornography. And when the forces stormed the compound where Osama bin Laden had been living and hiding out, they found on his computer and various hard drives, thousands and thousands of pornographic images and films of all kinds. See, these people who were so devoted to their religion that they would give, lay down everything for it, in their heart were secretly disobeying their God. That's the nature of the religious sin. So before you can get well, you have to realize you're sick. And before we can get spiritually renewed, friends, we have to see that we too were spiritually dead and that that sickness of sin is what God is dealing with in us. And the deeper our insight into this is, the more profound our joy will be when you realize just what Jesus did for you. You see, when Paul says here, there is no one righteous, not even one, he knows there's another part of that story that there actually was one. He was born of a woman. He was a human being like you and me. He was born under God's law, but unlike us, he kept every part of it from the heart. He was tempted, the Bible says, in every way, just as we are, but he never sinned. He was tested to the limit. He was torn apart on the cross. His name was Jesus Christ. And he did that to bring lost, wicked, depraved sinners back to God and unite them with him. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the door of heaven and let us in. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.